Hey, everybody. I've got a little bit of housekeeping here before we get into the episode about Instagram and Theology Beer Camp. So I've been getting more active on Instagram, and I just want to let you guys know, in case you want to see me make some videos where I look directly into the camera, I'm sharing some stories and posts about basically all the topics that we cover on this show over at Instagram.com slash Dan Coke. That's C-O-K-E, and the link is in the show notes. Also, Theology Beer Camp is returning in 2024, October 17th through 19th. The theme is Return of the God Pods. That is a Lord of the Rings reference, which should surprise nobody. I will be there alongside Brian McLaren, Diana Butler-Bass, the New Evangelicals, Bible for Normal People, Tony and Josh from GGCH, of course, Trip Fuller and Homebrewed Christianity, and a whole grip of others. And you can use the promo code RETURNOFYHP, all one word, for $25 off your ticket. Prices go up starting June 1st. That link will be in the notes. I hope to see a bunch of you guys there in October. It was a serious highlight of last year for me. If you're listening to this podcast, you must recognize the value of asking questions. At Aramco, our questions help us engineer a better future. How can today's resources fuel our shared tomorrow? How can we deliver energy to a world that can't stop? How can we deliver one of the fuels of the future? How can we sow curiosity to harvest ingenuity? To learn more about how innovation drives us forward, visit aramco.com slash powered by how. My name is Dan Koch. Like many of you, I've been on a complicated faith journey for a number of years now. And while I tend to find myself on the progressive side of Christianity, my goal is not to make liberal converts. I want this show to be a resource for Christians to my right and to my left, as well as former Christians and non-religious folks, anyone who finds themselves asking difficult questions about God, science, prayer, fate, suffering, evangelism, and more. So many of us have been given bad answers to those good questions, often by people with pure intentions. I want to say that you have permission to take both Christianity and the modern world very seriously. And I hope to facilitate that by introducing you to people seeking God across the Christian spectrum, engaging hard questions in a multitude of ways. Thanks for listening. When it comes to the listeners of this show, theologically, my best guess is that there are more listeners to my right than to my left. But politically, I think it is the opposite. There are more listeners to my left than there are to my right. I love that, assuming it's true. And I think that it's a nice balance. Uh, and today's wide-ranging conversation with Ryan is a bit of a love fest between two sociopolitically center-left people. Uh, and I just want to warn you about that. <laughs> this is not an episode where you're going to get sort of far leftist uh, critiques of center left moderation. This is a this is two center left sociopolitical white men uh, congratulating each other, but doing so with a ton of data and evidence. So that's just a fair warning for you. Um, no revolutions this week. Uh, but Ryan Burge knows his stuff and he has the data 
to back it up. He is assistant professor of political science at Eastern Illinois University and the co-founder of Religion in Public. Besides publishing extensive academic research, he's written for religious religion news service, Christianity Today, and others. He's got a book that I think just came out, but it was not even close to coming out when we recorded this conversation. He's also an ordained pastor in the American Baptist denomination. And we're going to talk through a couple articles Ryan has published in the last year or so, and then also about this fantastic David French piece in which he quotes three of Ryan's articles. Links to all four of those will be in the show notes if you want to read them before or after listening. And finally, it appears that we had a little bit of audiophile drift in the second half of our conversation. There are some times when it sounds like Ryan is interrupting me, but that appears to just have been sort of the audio files getting a little bit wonky. It's not that distracting, but just in case you hear that. Okay, into my chat with Ryan. Ryan, thank you so much, man, for joining me today. This is a topic that I think is top of mind for almost everyone under 50 who was raised evangelical. Is that fair to say? Yeah. Yeah. No, I mean, I think a lot of definitely a generational switch at that point where younger people were like, what are we doing right now? What does the future of evangelicalism look like? Yeah. So I want to dive in. What we're going to do here is kind of talk through a few of your articles and then and then eventually move into some of the stuff that David French is sort of claiming based on your work in his own article. Um, and I'm stoked. I think we're going to get to a lot of the stuff that I know I've been thinking about and a lot of people have been thinking about. Let's start with um, this piece you wrote about how various segments of the American electorate see themselves and how they see the two major parties. So I want to give people there, – there will be a link to all of these articles in the show notes. So if people want to pull them up, they can. This one I believe is called How Liberal Are Republicans – and uh, so there's a link to that. If you want to pull that up, if you're not driving right now, I'd highly suggest that getting a visual for what we're talking about here. Um, how would you describe it visually, though, if people can't, if they're driving and they can't pull it up? Yeah, so it's a series of really line graphs that are three colors, blue for Democrats, red for Republicans, and gray for independents. And I break that down by, I think, 16 different religious groupings and these questions are awesome because they ask people to place the, the the two parties in ideological space between very liberal on one end and very conservative on the other end and middle of the road in the middle. And then they ask people to place themselves in ideological space on that same seven-point spectrum. So you really can track how people are perceiving themselves but also how – they're perceiving the political parties over time. So that, you know, I'm always interested as a social scientist, like do people understand that Republicans are right of center and Democrats are left of center? And do they think that they've moved, you know, over a period, this goes from 2012 to 2019, do they perceive movement and how is that systematic or is it based on what you are, all those kind of things. And so like, I think that's just like fascinating in terms of trying to figure out have some groups have seen the Republican Party become more conservative over time. Some groups have seen them stay as conservative as they are over time. And that's really based on how liberal you are. You know, for instance, like atheists see the Republican Party being about as conservative as it could possibly be right now. 
while your white evangelicals see that you're that think the Republican Party's basically stayed right of center, but stayed in the same spot in the last seven years. So, you know, that tells you a lot about, you know, how people are, are viewing the parties and ideological space and what conservative means, what liberal means, that kind of thing. Doesn't Trump throw a bit of a wrench in all of this in terms of the left and right continuum? Like, isn't there a sense in which some of the things that Trump, I guess I would say, most of what Trump campaigned on, especially, is these are right of center stances for the most part, although protectionism has been a left of center stance in previous decades when unions were more powerful, for instance. Um, obviously, the immigration stance is pretty a pretty right of center immigration stance. In fact, almost as far right as you can get on that topic. But there is a Trump is a wrench, right, in that he basically remade the party in his own image. So would we expect, for instance, an astute group of observers to like, would that actually move it on the left right spectrum? Let's say someone who's really paying attention or would they still go, oh, it's still right. It's just a different kind of right than it was four years ago. Does that make sense? Yeah. Yeah. No, that's I mean, you're asking people to like. The one thing you learn in graduate school in political science is that, that you think about politics a lot more than most people think about politics, right? Like the average person thinks about it like once a week for two minutes, you know, and maybe if you're lucky, right? So we have to like think about how other people, and this is what I, this is what I struggle with in political science classes, like teaching undergraduates, because they assume that everyone else knows as much as about politics or cares as much as they do. And the reality is no one does. Right. So with Trump, I think what people have perceived, at least, is that he has moved the party to the right because the most salient issue for him is immigration. I think when when Trump, you know, is dead, long dead in the ground, we're going to think about Trump and immigration. Those two things are going to be tied together. Yeah, they're Mexico's bringing rapists. They're bringing yes. criminals. Right. That's what will be yes. tied to him. Yeah, that will be his legacy for, you know, for generations. The right? wall. Right. The yeah. wall. Yeah. Like reducing legal immigration dramatically, you know, yeah. cutting number of refugees, this country from 115,000 to about 25,000, which is, you know, just unbelievable. If you sit back and think about it, his four so, years are the lowest four years of yes. admitted refugees since like the 30s or something insane. And, you know, I wanted to do an actually an experiment where I like I surveyed evangelicals and just gave them that fact. And, and just try to figure out that would change their views of Trump based on the fact that, you know, refugees from like China who have been persecuted for being Christians are being denied entering this country to see if that would change their view of Trump. Because I think when they think of immigration and Trump, they think of, you know, Mexicans jumping the border like they yeah. don't think about other kinds of immigration. And I think that's really what Trump's legacy is going to be is it's not it's going it, he gave you know, he gave permission for people to be anti-immigrant all across the board, yeah. not just illegal immigrant, but all immigrants. I think that's. For Trump. Let me save you some time, though, Ryan. Yeah, <laughs> you don't have to do that experiment. <laughs> it's that fact that you could present that evidence, and it will not change their minds. At least not in the moment. It might plant a seed. They might be more likely to admit that they were wrong sooner, or something like that, down the line. But it, you know, that's my uh, cynical sort of social psychology side coming out. See, I wonder though if it's it like demographics change it though, right? Like at higher levels of education might shift it, or older versus younger, or white versus non-white. Okay, you yeah. Know? Now I want you to do it. Now I'm changing my answer. Yeah, because I want to see the <laughs> well, data. Well, I would need some. Uh, I would need some money. That's the problem. That's yeah. where no one has any money to give me right now. So I'll just guess. Maybe like Lifeway or Barna would let you do something like that. So let's start here. I think that the most, the kind of bold text finding of this you know, study is that white evangelicals basically 
see themselves as exactly the same, more or less, on the left-right spectrum as the GOP. And they are the only group out of 20, 25 religious groups surveyed that actually just think of themselves as the same. They're, they are aligned with the party. They're, the lines are on top of each other. What's going on there? I think that's – I mean I think – and this is what David French talks about a little bit is the idea that it used to be that white evangelicals were like a special type of Republican, right? They like they didn't love the taxation thing and you know they didn't really talk about regulations, economic issues, or even immigration. It was really they're, they're Republicans because of social issues, gay marriage, abortion, you know, religious freedom, and that kind of thing. Well, guess what? It's not true. Like that is like I, I wish I could like I'm I'm gonna write a book called like Ten Myths You Believe About American Religion that are completely false. And that's one of them, which is going to be that like white evangelicals are a special type of Republican. They are the Republican Party. They are the core of the Republican Party. Literally 13% of all adult Americans in this country are white evangelical Republicans. It's like one out of seven Americans are white evangelical Republicans. They're the largest religious voting block in America today. Like White Catholics are split evenly between Democrats and Republicans, so they're not that big. They're only 8% each side. Atheists are only 6% of the population total. So you don't get to 13% any other way except with white evangelical Republicans. They are the core, the base, the middle, the whatever you want to call it, of the Republican Party. And they agree with the Republican Party on everything from abortion to immigration to economic issues. They, they are in lockstep with Donald Trump. They did not hold their nose and vote for Donald Trump. They like Donald Trump from the jump, and they voted for Donald Trump. In the primaries, okay, if you th- this is like a, a myth that like got sprouted up that 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 the white evangelicals wanted Ted Cruz, and then whenever you know it became clear that he was going to lose, they voted for Trump. No, no, no. Of all the attendance groups of white evangelicals, the only group that voted more for Cruz than Trump was those who attended more than once a week. So weekly attending evangelicals wanted Donald Trump. Monthly attending evangelicals wanted Donald Trump. It is a myth to believe that they said, oh, well, I guess we'll go for Trump. They love Donald Trump. They loved him from the beginning. They love him now. They're not going to abandon him. It's he and the Republican Party and the white evangelical bloc are one in the same. There's no daylight between those three groups. But so this is what's so interesting. Uh, and and, and you, you mentioned that like people paying attention to politics notice a lot more nuance. But for instance, so I'll, I'll speak about my, my father-in-law, who is a very good man. And he is a Republican, I would say, and I don't think he would, I don't think he would think this is false. He is a Republican because of, because he's a small business owner. He's super active in local politics with the Republican Party. He just believes Republican policies are better for business, uh, just the business world in general, not just his bottom line. And so he's just like a through and through fiscal conservative, right? And so I guess for him, the the move to Trump is, is pretty straightforward. Trump's a business guy. He wants to deregulate, you know, yada, yada, yada. But if it were moral issues like gay marriage, abortion, it gets murkier if you're paying attention, right? Like, because sure, Trump said all the right things about abortion. Was that enough for him to just have the right sound bites? I'm I'm kind of floundering here in my questions. I apologize. Very good. No, I think that the the way that I frame this is it's people voted more for the Republicans because they hate the Democrats. <laughs> That's you know, like I think there's a lot of people who would who like actually don't their policies actually align in some ways more closely with like a Joe Biden than a Donald Trump. It's just they cannot like it it just is repulsive to them to vote for a Democrat from like years of 
crap that's built up in their minds about how bad the Democrats are and how, you know, they're socialists and Bill Clinton and all that kind of stuff that goes along with that. Like they just cannot bring themselves to vote for the Democratic Party, even though, by the way, we need to talk about this for a second. There's something called asymmetric polarization, which is a term that everyone should know right now. Okay, what's that? So we can measure the parties using a very rigorous um, score called a DW nominate score. You can look it up online. It's done by some of the best political scientists in the world. And you can track members of Congress and their policy positions in space from negative one to one with zero being completely moderate. Okay, and if you track the two parties in Congress over the last 40 years, the Democrats have moved slightly to the left, but the Republicans have moved much further to the right. Then the Democrats have moved to the left. The Republican Party today is is miles more conservative than it was 30 years ago. I mean, Ronald Reagan passed gun control legislation. He raised taxes. He allowed immigrants. He gave them sanctuary in this country. Right. All right. three things that would have got him run out of the modern Republican Party. He was the center of the Republican Party 30 years ago. He would not even be part of the party today. That shows you how far to the right they are. And you can look, you can even track certain politicians like Chuck Grassley and, and um, Lamar Alexander and Lindsey Graham over time. Like their positions have changed completely in the last 20 years because the party has pulled hard to the right. Now, I will say this. The one thing that the Republican Party has been really good at is demonizing the left and making them seem like a bunch of nutters, which they really haven't been. I mean, so I was thinking about this last night. Here's where the Republican Party went wrong, in my estimation, where the Democrats did not go wrong this time. The Republican Party saw that Trump was going to be the nominee and realized he was very far to the right. Then they waited till April or May and said, hey, we should probably try to stop this during 2016's primaries. Right. And at that point, it was too late. Right. You couldn't bring it back. The car, the, the horse had left the barn. It's not coming back. You know what the Democrats did? They realized that Bernie might win this deal in February. And then guys like James Clyburn said, you know what we should do? We should have Joe Biden be our guy, threw his weight behind Biden. Biden wins South Carolina. And you know what happens in the three days after he wins South Carolina? He gets Pete. He gets Amy. He gets everybody else in the field to unite behind him to pull the party back to the middle so they don't fall into the far left socialist Bernie stuff so they wouldn't lose the 2020 election. Right. That, that's the most important moment. But the two weeks between the South Carolina primary and Super Tuesday is the most two most important weeks in Democratic primary history in my lifetime, at least, because it saved the party from Bernie and losing in 2020. Yeah, and uh, I think it, it's now clear that Obama was a big part of that behind the scenes, making calls. There's going to be a book to be written about what happened in those like 10 to 14 days, about getting Pete to drop out so quick and Amy to drop out so quick and just unify behind Biden, even though they don't like Biden. I bet none of them really like Biden, but they like Biden a lot more than they like Bernie, and they realized the greater good was we want Biden. And you know what's funny? They, the Republicans even managed to paint, try to paint Biden as a socialist when he is the least thing from being a socialist in the in, in the primary. You know, so it just it just blows my mind how like framing works so well in America. The Republicans are much more better at framing than the Democrats are. Yes. Okay. So f- that's a perfect bridge. So framing works well. This is what I want to ask you. Is political messaging either directly from candidates in the party or filtered through prominent preachers and evangelical leaders, is framing the best explanation for why white evangelicals have just remained lockstep with a party even as it drifts and they don't think it's drifting and they don't think they're drifting and they think that the the Democrats are getting more left because, by the way, one of the interesting things on these graphs is that 
the the group who thinks the Democrats are furthest left of any religious group are white evangelicals. So is the best explanation for all that just that these framers, <laughs> which is funny because usually that's used around uh, the founding fathers, but are the are the sort of is the marketing machine so good? Are the recipients of the marketing gullible? Are they you know, what what's the best explanation for mm. the fact that they are the group? Is it just that like so much care went into keeping that group? Is it you know, what what do you see as the forces here? I think it's all comes down to identity politics, honestly. And I think the most important, I'll give you three numbers. I think the most three most important numbers in American politics today. One is that the share of Americans who are white and Christian has been dropping over time. In 2018, it was 51% of Americans are white and Christian. Okay. It's going to be like 45% in the next seven years. Okay. Less than half of Americans. At the same time, 75% of the Democratic Party is, I'm sorry, 75% of the Republican Party is white and Christian. 38% of the Democratic Party is white and Christian. So what happens is, and I think this is like the most important thing people do. They go, who am I? That's like the one thing we struggle with every single day. Like, who am I? Like, what am I? Am I this? Am I that? Am I good? Am I bad? Am I, you know, smart? Am I dumb? Am I big? Am I small? Am I Republican or am I Democrat? Like, that's one of the like the defining questions of the 21st century, I think, in American politics. So what they do is they start looking around and going, who are people like me? Like, who am I going to throw in with, right? Who identifies the way I identify? And if you're a white Christian, you look at the Democratic Party and go, man, that's a bunch of brown and black people who, you know, are Muslims, are Buddhists, are atheists, are, you know, Wiccans, are Jedis. I don't want anything to do with those people. You know what? I'm a white Christian. That Republican Party's full of a bunch of white Christians. So I'm going to throw in with the white Christians. And so what it's become has become this identity fusion. So now it's, what do I believe? Well, I believe what the party tells me to believe. And Democrats are too, by the way. I believe what the party tells me to believe. And I see the world in the way they, they train me to see the world. And if they say that, that Joe Biden's a socialist, I'm going to, you know, I'm going to believe that because those who I throw in with. So I think it's all about signaling where you fit in, 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 in social space and ideological space. And you want, you want to look at people and go, okay, I trust my pastor. And he says that, you know, Joe Biden's a socialist and the election was stolen. So I'm going to believe that, too. So I think that's really what the big it's about anchoring. Like where do I hook my anchor to and who do I follow? And for a lot of white Christians, they follow other white Christians who have moved further and further right over time. I mean, you've just given a, a microcosm for what eventually turned me into uh, a psychology student instead of a theology student, is that a after 2016, really even 2015, a lot of the primary stuff. I was asking the question, how did this happen? What are, what are some explanations for this? I read Jonathan Haidt's The Righteous Mind, and mm -hmm. I thought this is a better explanation than any theological explanation I've heard. And that began my increased interest in psychology, which now has led to me doing this doctorate. And that is – so it's just like the thing you just said is so tied up with my own story that I, I feel like I can't help but mention that. You said something that like, I think is like really profound, which is that other people have come to the same – they approach the problem in the same way that I was taught to approach the problem of politics, which is you know, what would Jesus do, right, to be kind of trite and basic, right? Like what, who would Jesus vote for? Like, and Jesus wouldn't like Bill Clinton because Bill Clinton cheated on his wife a bunch. You know, like, okay, I get that. The, the problem with that though is we're trying to find theological explanations for why white evangelicals are the way they are, and there's no theological explanation that gets there. It's only a political explanation. Okay. I think that's the 
I, that's the most important shift that's happened in American politics in my lifetime since the 1990s is it used to be, and I, I grew up white evangelical. We were taught that everything should have a biblical worldview, a Christian worldview, right? We should view politics through the lens of the Bible and Jesus and everything kind of goes downstream of, of, of religion and theology. Well, I'm convinced now that, that politics is that first lens, and now religion is downstream of that political lens. And so now we read the Bible in a political way. We go to church in a political way, which means we pick the church we're going to go to based on our politics, right? So that is the most profound switch in America, and it's almost like politics has become religion, and that's why we're so intractable now. Right. Because if you believe something without any really evidence, like, ooh, like the election was stolen, that is akin to believing like Jesus died and was born again. <laughs> like, you know, like he, he rose up from the grave. Like that's the same level of magical thinking that's involved. And so you can't break that magical thinking because your entire life is tied up in that magical thinking. So I think if, when we start thinking about politics as a form of religion, and by the way, we have things like rituals. Every two and four years, we have elections, right? We wear T-shirts, we sing songs, you know, we have group, we drive around in, in boat parades and in parades. I mean, think about it. This is as religious as it gets. And if we start thinking about politics in those terms, it all it makes it very depressing, but it also helps explain the world a lot better than trying to use the other lens, which is that you know politics is downstream from religion. Yeah, so I would 100% agree with you, except I just I think the word politics might be a little too small. I would want to use a word, something like it's it's tribal and that now in our American culture, increasingly, every aspect of one's life is statistically more likely to line up with one of two broadly speaking tribes. And, you know, there are factions and there's subtypes and all of that. And when I find groups that break that, like Mormons, for instance, who vote disproportionately less for Trump or something, I'm like, it's like finding a unicorn or a leprechaun and a pot of gold because everybody else pretty much does lockstep. And so it's, it's politics. True. It's also the kind of car you drive. It's whether you wear camo or J crew, it's whether you, you know, it's like everything, you know, the Tesla is to liberals, what the Ford F three fifty is to rural conservatives. It's like, there's just a version of each for each of these two dominant cultural groups, and that is the primary lens, and everything else increasingly is downstream from that, and it mm -hmm. didn't used to be that way. Maybe it was that way 150 years ago, and then it wasn't 70 years ago, and it's back today. I don't – you know, who knows? But that's the way it is now, and it wasn't yeah. that way as much when I was growing up, for instance. Yeah, no, I, I think you use the, the word that I think is right as tribal. Like it is, this is like, this thing that makes me mad about the religiously unaffiliated. Like whenever I post a graph about the nuns getting larger, yeah. they're like, yeah, sooner religion's gone, the better off we'll be. And, you know, it's all sky fairies and sky daddies and all this stuff. They honestly believe that if we get rid of religion, that most of the world's problems will go away. It's a John Lennon it, song. Yeah, exactly. It is like the most pie in the sky, idealistic thing I've ever heard in my life, because what you're assuming is that if you get rid of religion, something is not going to take the place of it. And guess what? We're already seeing that right now. Yeah. Like politics has become as tribal as religion is. If you go to Europe, right, where religion is basically 20 percent of our people are religious in any way. Guess what? Soccer has taken the place of religion for some people there. Like if you don't have religion, you get something else. 
it's not religion in and of itself that creates violence and division and intolerance and hate. It's human beings wanting to create tribalism and us versus them, which is basically in our DNA, by the way. I think it's really like we have to fight the urge to go us versus them. Religion does that very nicely for us. But if you get rid of that, you're going to have soccer. You're going to have politics. You're going to have race. You're going to have you know class or gender or whatever it is. We're always going to divide ourselves. It's just religion became the, the whipping boy or the scapegoat for all these divisions we already have. And it's going away and we still have these divisions. So explain that to me. I just don't understand that logic. And I get so I, I never respond because I just there, you know, Twitter, you can't respond on Twitter. There's it's just no nuance it. yeah. there. It's just not worth it. But I just want people to like and it's almost by the way, it's almost always like a 17-year-old white male who took one philosophy class and thinks he understands life now. Yeah. Right. Like it's such an oversimplification, but man, it's, it's tribalism through and through. It's not religion. It's tribalism. Let's think about us versus them, not Protestant versus Catholic or, you know, Christian versus Muslim. That's not what it is. Okay. Lots in there. I feel like I am going to stick in a religious tradition that at least has the sermon on the Mount and the good Samaritan in it. And the judge, not lest you be judged, you know, like imagine, a big moral religious system who, where you don't have the sort of founder and son of God pushing back against tribalism. You know, it's like, so we, we do a bad job of that, but at least the words of Jesus are there whenever we're willing to listen and we happen to be humbled. You know, we are, our daughter disconnects from the family and we have to rethink some things. Well, we can open up to Matthew five through seven and go, Oh, I think I've actually been, going at the pet, the speck in my brother's eye, not the log in my own eye. Like you need something like that to come back to, to make your religious group uh, accountable to itself in some way. And I think that, you know, I, I'm, I'm pretty cynical about the extent to which the older generation of white evangelicals will have a come to G will come to Jesus. <laughs> you know, in the wake of this, I think most evidence shows that people are pretty stubborn. You know, the road is narrow that leads to life, as Jesus says. Uh, and so, you know, my cynicism is there, but at least there's a mechanism by which you can come back and use the language of your religious tradition to ask forgiveness, you know? Yeah. I think that's the, that's the, that's the thing where I'll just be, I mean, I'm a pastor, right? So like, I, I obviously have a home field advantage here. Like I, I care about yeah. Jesus. I care about the faith. I'll say this. There's nothing redemptive about politics. Nothing. There's absolutely nothing redemptive, nothing salvific about politics at all. Like there is no like, but maybe we should be nice to our neighbors about politics. Politics says, I want to kick the crap out of you for as long as I can. And then when I can't anymore, you're going to kick the crap out of me. Like that's how politics works. And that's exactly what we're going to see in politics. Right? Well, that's what the Republican Party did in the last three months when they you know, were holding on to power as long as they could. Let's do everything we can to just beat up the Democrats for as long as we can because we know we're not going to be able to. There is no Sermon on the Mount in the Constitution, right? There is no like higher level thinking in politics. It's I'm going to win. It's all about power. And I will say this, religion has done some terrible things in this world, yeah. but it's also brought some really beautiful things into this world. I mean, it, it, it gives us, it compels us to love our neighbors as best we can and serve our neighbors and be generous with our time and our energies and our monies and, you know, to make the world a better place. Does it make the world the worst place? I think sometimes absolutely the answer is yes, but I think there's a lot of, and this is what makes me mad about 
people who criticize the faith. They criticize Jerry Falwell and Pat Robertson and the people they see on TV doing stupidity. They don't see the person, you know, like my church of 30 people who feeds 300 kids a brown bag of food every weekend for long weekends at the school, right? And, and that's what church is. It's not Falwell. It's not Robertson. It's it's people, 10 or 12 people working together to make the world less awful. And that's what religion does at the aggregate level. You're pointing out the one person or 10 people or even a thousand people who do something stupid. I want to point to you millions of people who just do their job, go to work, try hard, serve the community, love their kids, you know, do good things. Like there's nothing, that, there's nobody like that in politics. Like politics doesn't make me want to feel like nothing about politics makes me want to feel like a better person or be a better person. Nothing. Don't you think though that people on the left, they look to things and I, I would include myself in this. They look to things like the civil rights struggle. And of course, the way that that happened to go down in our country was through a black Protestant kind of lens and through black Protestant language and preaching mm-hmm. uh, and those kind of idioms and those organizing principles. But it was also a thoroughly political movement. Uh, And something feels very salvific about that. And so I'm not surprised when I see liberal leaning people becoming less attached to organized religion and replacing that with activism, especially any kind of activism on behalf of the, the marginalized. I mean, that is kind of religious and it is kind of salvific. And depending on your depending on your theology and how important you think sort of this world kingdom of heaven work is there's quite a bit of overlap yeah i i think i think the modern atheists which is you know six percent of the population is a their religion for them is it's all politics like all of it that they are the most liberal group in america today they're the most active political group in america today at the same time like they they engage in more political acts per year than any other religious group at all levels of education like politics has become their you know reason to be right like that's why atheists have exist i think agnostics are kind of one click away from that like i think that's what motivates the political left in america like they don't have religion as their motivating factor it's politics but i i do think it's so interesting to me how you know like marco rubio tweeted about um Pastor Warnock in, in Georgia about he ha- he gave a sermon where he talked about how you can't serve God and the military at the same time, which is a very like, you know, not that far afield of like Martin Luther King Jr. And, you know, sort of leftist political, you know, re- Christian theology in America. And he like tried to use it as a bludgeon against Pastor Warnock. Like you can't serve America. You know, it's you're not you're not patriotic. And it's like you can use religion as a bludgeon to bludgeon the right and bludgeon the left. It's just so funny how we we've weaponized the idea of faith. And I think that atheists and agnostics think that they've sort of like bypassed all this, but they're 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 they're, they're developing their own schema over there. Like yeah. the same idea. Like the thing is, and I don't want to go too far on this road because it'll get me in trouble. But I think like wokeness has has some tendencies to be religious in some ways oh, totally. because yeah, it, it requires you to be have a litmus test. Like, do you yes. believe all these things? And if you don't, then you will be cast out from the organization. Worse, do you use these terms mm-hmm. and not those terms, which were mm-hmm. acceptable two years ago, but now have been replaced by this term? Uh-huh. And are you up on the correct terminology? Which, by the way, you can be up on the correct terminology and still refuse to pay alimony and sue the <laughs> shit out of your ex-spouse. <laughs> you know, like, yeah. you, like it, you can be a pretty terrible person who's figured out what language to say to not become anathema in your mm-hmm. social group if you live in a coastal city or something and not yeah. be a good person at all right yeah. so no. that's why i think that uh 
the, the language wars are so disinteresting to me. I'm so much more interested in the policy discussions and yep. people's receipts, what they actually do, what they spend their time and money and energy on. Uh-huh. Um, and I think that in some sense, just getting your nomenclature right uh, is now, of course, there are some people for whom nomenclature is a way of showing them that you care for them. And, sure. uh, you know, I, I'm going to have eventually I will have transgender clients and I will refer to them by the pronouns that they prefer because they're mm-hmm. my client and my job is to love them as I work with them. Mm-hmm. That's all well and good. But when that becomes your main crusading item publicly, well, that's just like too fucking easy, man. I mean, like <laughs> just learning some language is like not a moral transformation. It's maybe the minimum In a one-to-one situation, I think that there are actually concerns. I think that there are concerning ripples from the public performance of wokeness that actually make left-leaning policies less likely to be passed because of the way that the broader culture, people to the center and to the left perceive it and they feel threatened. And so they will vote, you know, against their interests because of cultural reasons. We don't have to, you know, whatever. That's my own personal view. Yeah. I think the term Latinx is the one of the reasons Biden did so bad in 2020. <laughs> you know, like Latinx is a term that literally like 4% of Hispanics want to be called Latinx. Like no one wants to be called that. But if you read an academic journal article about Hispanic people, that's the only term they use to describe them. It's like, we're going to tell you what we're going to call you now and you're going to take it. Like to mm. me, like that's colonialism, right? Like we tell me telling you, this is what your name is, kid. Your name's Latinx, whether you like it or not. Like I get the wokeness. Like I want to be inclusive, just like you talked about, right? Like I do not want to be discriminatory against anybody. I want to be tolerant and loving. And, you know, like you, you listen, we're all together on this thing. But like I said, it's almost become like if you don't use all the right words and you're not you're not liberal enough, right? Like if you don't believe like the government, like this is what blows my mind. Like things like if you said if you went into like a, a democratic meeting, especially like in a big city, and you said, I don't think Catholic churches should have to hire LGBT teachers for their schools. They would run you out of there so fast. Right. Right. And then they would go, yeah, but we need to win back white Catholics. And I'm like, you can't do both those things. Like that's just not the way politics works. Like you have to understand like your position, like the idea of like reparations. Okay. I get the intellectual like idea behind reparations. 100%. I don't know if I agree with it, but I understand the idea behind it, right? You have to understand 12% of Americans are in favor of reparations. So you might want to stop talking about it like in mixed company because it's not going to become a winner. It's just not. Like defund the police, by the way, Minneapolis didn't even defund the police. They said they were going to and never did because they realized how terrible of a policy idea it was. Like stop that. Like we can yell about the Republicans all day about like, you know, kids in the borders and cages and, you know, lowering the refugee cap, which is all terrible. The Democrats shoot themselves in the foot all the time too. advocating for policies. are You know what they should advocate for? Paid family leave. Okay, six to eight weeks of paid family after a woman has a baby and a couple couple weeks for the dad and fifteen dollar minimum wage. Run those two policies. They passed in Florida. Fifteen dollar minimum wage passed in Florida easily. Okay, run though. Run policies that we can all, most of us can agree on. Right? Don't stop talking about the fringes. That's why I hate about social media is they beat you over the head with reparations and you know all, all the like. Leave me alone. Like talk about things that are doable. Like canceling student loan debt. Guess what? That's not gonna happen. It's just not. It's just not. It doesn't strike anyone as a good policy who's not on Twitter. Like my dad would lose his mind. 
That's the problem I have with politics is the loudest voices are the most extreme voices on both sides. And there's a lot of good policy that gets lost in the crush of the crazy on the left and the right. Oh, yeah. I mean, I think that for me, a big moment was probably 2016, 2017. It must have been 2017. I interviewed Michael Ware, who is mm-hmm. a former Obama aide. He wrote the book Reclaiming Hope. He's a co-founder mm-hmm. of the AND Coalition uh, and campaign. Sorry. He when he was in the Obama White House, he and he told the story in Reclaiming Hope, his book, there was an abortion reduction measure that had been worked up in a bipartisan way. Uh, it had support from at least, you know, whatever it was, Congress people or senators on both sides. And it it was, you know, about to be on Obama's desk. I don't know exactly when that occurs, but it had made it quite a ways in this process. And Michael said it got it got canceled by both sides. It got canceled from Obama's side because his advisors said, if you work together on an abortion reducing measure that is explicitly called that and known to be that, you will lose Democratic base members and you'll lose the support of these uh, pro-choice advocacy groups, the, the far left activist groups. And then it was also canceled by the pro-life advocacy groups who they their advisors told them, if you are seen to be working with Obama on reducing abortions, you will lose funding and you will lose support from your far right activist base. And so it was in no one's interest to reduce abortions. Mm -hmm. And so it didn't happen. And that was sort of the moment for me when I was like, okay, I fundamentally distrust activists on anything until I've seen a bunch of data. Uh-huh. So yeah. there, there's a few things that I'm willing to be an activist about. Like, for instance, I think that Judge Gorsuch taking the treaties that the United States government made with Native American nations mm-hmm. at face value and f-ing giving them the land that we said they could have. I'll be an activist on that. That's sure. just that's just sticking by our word. Yep. I am some level of a climate activist and some level of a racial reconciliation activist. I think I'm more towards the center in terms of the policies that I think can get passed. But like, generally speaking, if you say, when I see activists on someone's bio, Mm -hmm. I automatically dock them 50% of the chance that I'm going to interview them. (laughs) Really? (laughs) Unless I'm like, okay, there's a really good reason that they're an activist, you know? Yeah. So people who have been active activists on behalf of refugee communities, I'm like, okay, I'm in, that's fine. I'm, I would be one too. If that was my world, that's a no brainer. These are the people who need it most. They're the most vetted. That's a good thing to be an activist for, but man, the list of things that I'm comfortable with activism on is like vanishingly small. You know, Dave, the David Shore story on Twitter, he's like, he was like a political analyst and he I was, I don't think so. So David Shore is a political analyst who worked for Civitas, which is like this big private firm that does like work for the Democrats, basically like behind the scenes work on like how to message and how to poll and all that kind of stuff. Anyway, uh, when all the George Floyd riots were going on, he tweeted out a piece that had been published in one of the best political science journals in America, where basically the guy who wrote it called uh, his name is Omar Wisnow. He's from uh, Princeton. He basically, you know, quantifiably showed that the riots before the Nixon election in 72 actually helped Nixon's vote share in the places where the riots were the worst saying that riots were basically helped the Republican. Yeah. And he tweeted that out, right? He just tweeted out the article and just summarized it like in a very like tweety kind of way, like bullet points and yada, yada, yada. He got absolutely run over on Twitter 
saying like, why are you trying to handicap the, you know, these, 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 these activists and these rioters and these, you know, these, these, uh, these, these people who are on the streets, why are you trying to make it seem like a bad thing? And all he said was, I'm just trying to tell you what the data says about what the impact of riots and protests are on vote share in an incoming election. It got so bad. He got fired from his job. David Shore did for literally just tweeting and summarizing an article written in one of, if not the best political science journal in America today, just regurgitating those ideas to try to make them palatable to a general audience because the ideas weren't woke enough, right? Which is that we should always support activism, that riots are the, you know, the plea of the, of the unheard, right? right? That these are all justifiable actions. I don't disagree with that, by the way, but I can also say in the same breath, it might hurt the Democrat in the 2020 presidential election because the data says it will. Sure. Right. You might still think it's very worth doing. Mm-hmm. And look, Absolutely. we ended up getting nationwide global protests over George Floyd and Biden still won. So it worked yeah. out. But Kenosha, for instance, mm-hmm. swung. What was it? 20, 30 points towards Trump. Yeah, where there were riots and stuff. And it was a big story. Obviously, Seattle, I'm sure, still voted <laughs> for Biden. Uh, yeah. But Seattle is in a thoroughly blue state, you know, on the coast. But sure. yeah, like the Kenosha, I don't, and I'm not up on the evidence, the county level data from 2020, but I I, I just know the Kenosha uh, anecdote, which is that it swung towards Trump significantly. And that's, to me, that's like, science is not woke or not woke, right? Like science is science. And I'll give you, I'll give you another one right now. I'll give you another one. This is the one that kills me is I have so many liberal friends on Facebook, especially who just, you know, talk about liberal stuff all the time and stay home, save lives and da, 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 da. And like the school, they're like, the schools need to all be closed down to we're all vaccinated. And I'm like, do you not read the evidence? Have you like not seen anything that's gone on there? Because the evidence is pretty clear that schools are not causing or perpetuating the pandemic, especially K through five, K through eight, the lower grades are not making this worse. Dr. Fauci agrees with me. Dr. Redfield at the CDC agrees with me. Dr. Birch agrees with me. And if you say that on my Facebook, people are going to call me a Nazi and a Trumper because you have to follow the party line, which is that coronavirus is will kill all of us, right? Like it's incredibly deadly. We cannot leave the house. You cannot go to work nor school until we all have a vaccination and we wait six months. Like it to me, there's like, if you believe the thing that kills me about liberals in America today is they say they believe in science, but they don't. They believe in science when it back and reinforces their position. I just think that it's it's another road is narrow, road is wide thing. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's believing in science does not is not real. Like yeah. that that's a I think believe in science is a phrase without a definition. Like sure. the, it's it's something more like there are at least two separate things that combine into something like believe in science. One is the people I take as authoritative are mm-hmm as follows. And then the other one is I understand the evidential process and probabilistic nature of scientific knowledge and evidence gathering. And those, those can, you can have only one without the other. And my guess is the people who are all in, they don't understand the way that science works, but they do know the, the kind of models they're supposed to look after in their tribe yeah right yeah yeah, yeah. no i think it's kind of risk aversion though too oh like, totally I, and fear like, right it's oh yeah for sure is terrifying 
Oh, it is terrifying. It is terrifying. But the problem is our brains, I think, are really bad at thinking logically and, and you know, 100%. empirically sometimes. Like, I think that's one thing if I could be more of, it's more empirical in how I think about the world and the risk associated with living in the world. And listen, I'm going to say this. The, the kill rate on the coronavirus for people under the age of 60 is like 0.2%. You can look this up. Like, this is a fact that bared out over millions of cases yeah. of the coronavirus. Is that zero? No. Is it really low? Empirically, the answer is yes. It's incredibly low. Do people sometimes get sick and are long haulers? Yes, but it's a very small percentage of people as well. The vast majority of people who get it who have no pre-existing conditions, within two weeks are completely back to normal, and they can go on with their lives. I get it. We're all risk averse. We don't want to get hit by a car. We don't want to die from coronavirus. But the reality is if you get it, there's like a very, very small chance you even have a symptom, A, B, have a bad symptom, and C, even smaller case of you going to the hospital, right? So like it's just we if we're going to be empirical, and I love how like liberals, especially with climate science, are very empirical, right? They really want to look at all the science, think through all the science and things like that. But then on other things, they're like, no, 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 listen, it's way safer just to stay home. I'm like, you can't have it both ways, right? Like that's the problem is when we create this, going back to tribalism, to go back to that is my tribe says coronavirus is not a, not, not a thing. So I'm going to go out and not wear a mask and be stupid and spread it around. Or coronavirus is the scariest thing that's ever happened in the history of my life. I'm not leaving my house ever until it's over. Like there's a lot of gray area between there. Mm -hmm. And I don't think people respect the fact that other people have different, you know, views of the science on these matters and it doesn't make me an idiot. It makes me, I think in some ways, it's harder to be in the middle, right, than it is to be on one side or the other because it means you oh, have yeah. to constantly reevaluate your position and the science that backs up your position. Yeah. I mean it's like it's harder to be in the middle is my mantra of the last five years of my life. <laughs> right? Yes. yes. Uh, and in his book How to Think, Alan Jacobs argues I think very convincingly for that, that like if you're not pissing people off – to your left and to your right mm -hmm. these mm -hmm. days, then you're probably doing something wrong because Spot we've gotten so polarized. It's yeah. so easy to just say Trump or mm -hmm. no Trump, mm -hmm. you know, like then and 90 percent of people are in, in your circle will be satisfied and give you plaudits for doing that. And 10 percent of people in your circle will push back and want some nuance. You got it. It's work to be anywhere in between you know, center, right, middle, center, left yeah. is, and of course I, I'm biased because that's where I have landed. And I would like to think that I'm doing good work. That's difficult, <laughs> but it really does seem difficult. So I, uh, I wrote this thing on Facebook. I was in a mood. I wanted to make people mad. So I looked up the data and I said, listen, guys, in the last three months, your kid was just as likely to die of coronavirus as get picked up by a guy in a white van and swept away. Like, Honest to God, kidnapping. Yeah, kids. 90 yeah. kids in three months are kidnapped. That's all. 90 kids. Like, it is incredibly rare for a kid to get kidnapped in America today. Like, the Save Our Children thing is complete and just bunk. There's no data that backs it up. There's saying like 300,000 kids are trafficked in America every year. That makes no sense on its face. But at the same time, only less than 100 kids have died from coronavirus in America, too, during that same three-month period of time. So which one are you more afraid of? Your kid being snatched up by a guy in a white van or dying of coronavirus? Because really, they're just as likely for both things. And I got people calling me MAGA Trump Republicans, and I got people saying that I hate children, and how can I be a pastor because I hate children so much on the same post, 
right? It's because we create these schemas in our heads, right? To say like, this is dangerous. Be very afraid of it. This is not dangerous. I don't care about it. The reality is both those things are just as scary, but our mind cannot accept the fact that they are, we are just as risky for one behavior as the other behavior. And that's the thing, metacognition, right? We have to constantly be thinking about how we're thinking about the world and evaluating where we are in the world and reevaluating where we are in the world. And listen, most people are lazy. I am too. I just want to like go, okay, Trump bad, you know, like grunt. I want to do that too. The hard work is reevaluating your positions every day and thinking about new information as it comes in to make you a more viable person, right? Like being self-aware to me is the most important thing you can be, right? Am I being too, like even in this interview, I'm going to sit back and think about, am I being too verbose? Am I letting you talk enough? Am I letting me talk enough? Am I being too political? Am I not being political enough? Am I not sticking close to the data, right? Like all these things I'm already thinking about. We have to be as self-aware as we possibly can be because that wins you see your blind spots. What am I missing? What am I not thinking about, right? That's the problem is that is hard work and we don't do hard work. Before we take a, a little break here, I want to just, just in case people are unclear, I, I think what you're saying and what I'm definitely saying is like, Listen to our national experts on what to do around coronavirus. They are steeped in the evidence as it comes out in all its probabilistic goodness. And like, that's still our best bet. Unless, you know, like, unless you happen to work for the National Institutes (laughs) of Health and you know Uh something I don't know. Uh Like, that's the best. So, like, we're not criticizing Fauci here or anything. It's more like what you're saying is there. And of course, I mean, obviously, I think. I think mathematically it's undeniable that coronavirus deniers or, you know, ignorers are a much bigger threat right now than those who are being too careful and shaming each other for not being careful enough. And I I think I've done my fair share of shaming friends, in fact, (laughs) privately and gotten called out for it. But, you know, like, so, so there's that, but so if our goal is like reducing deaths, needless deaths, then, it makes sense to sort of spend more of our efforts on the people who are just living life as normal than the people who are going too far. But what you're saying is that there's a version of it that's like all out. It's all in and all out. And it's actually not data driven. It will cherry pick the little studies that come out that support it. And it's, you know, maybe you could call it safetyism if you want to use that. Uh, I don't know if that's heightened Lukianoff's word or if it's someone else's word that they use. It's also just fear, fear based, you know, whereas on the right, a lot of this is like fear that our rights will be taken away or something, Mm -hmm. which is pretty unfounded. And it's also pretty unfounded to just be totally afraid of everything and not think about the economic impacts, which also actually lead to deaths and, you know, whatever. That's, and listen, this all comes back to me, the fact that my so I live in a small town, right, in a rural part of America. My kids school started out all online and went to hybrid halfway through the year. So they've only gone to school nine times since March right now. Yeah. There's a school eight miles from me. They've been going to school five days a week since August in person. So like which one is right and how do we arrive at completely different conclusions about – and the problem is my kid's school is a poor school. Uh, 80% of the kids are on free or reduced lunch, yeah. and no one's advocating for those kids because their parents are not coming to school with me. Let's just be honest here. So those kids are going to get – they're really being mistreated by a system where they don't have a voice. And I think like to me, that's a very liberal thing to do, by the way. I'm being a super liberal right now by saying, Mike, those kids need to go back to school. Right. Like, but no one, will, no one will position it that way. I will say this. People ask me, are you going to get the vaccine? If Fauci says I should get the vaccine, you know what I'm going to do? 
I'm going to get the vaccine because I trust the experts. And you know what Fauci says about school? Kids should be in school as long as community spreads under control, right? Yeah. Believe- so maybe not like we're, we're recording this in the middle of a, of the biggest surge we've had in the yes. States. So yes. this might not be the, the exact moment, but a month from now after the holidays, if mm-hmm. that can be tamped down, then yeah, maybe next semester or whatever should be in person. And you know, if it's, what if it meets whatever guidelines Fauci is putting around it in terms of what does it mean for community spread to be under control? Mm-hmm. Um, okay, well, let's take a little break. And when we come back, we got a lot more to get into. Most recent patron exclusive episode is with my buddy Josh Montoya, where he lays on me the best analogy I've maybe ever heard for being raised in a constrictive religious environment. To hear that episode, you need to become a patron. Patreon.com slash Dan Koch. It's $5 a month. It includes access to the Facebook group as well. And if you are a patron, your spouse can also join. Let them know if they'd like to. They can join the Facebook group uh, and they will be approved. Okay, back to the conversation with Ryan. So Ryan, I actually enjoyed kind of going off on a, a little bit more like sociopolitical tangent there about language and wokeness and I don't know, related issues, but I want to bring it back to white evangelicals and politics here. One, one little thing we could probably get through pretty quick because, because we basically talked about it was sure. you have an article that is called is white born again, Christian, just a synonym for Republican. Mm-hmm. What is the what is the strongest piece of evidence that that's the case? Yeah. So if you look at a bunch of issue areas, so like all kinds of stuff from environmentalism to taxation, to regulations, to foreign policy, to things like, um, you know, pay maternity leave and things like that. There is almost no daylight between the average Republican and the average white evangelical Republican. Like, you, we, you know, we talked about like you would you would expect that like white evangelicals would be like, yeah, I'm not so down with like cutting taxes on rich people, for instance, because like that's not biblical or whatever. Um, really, the only place that you see any daylight between those two groups, white evangelical Republicans and Republicans in general, is on the issues of things like marijuana, which kind of makes sense, right? Because that's like more like a social issue that has like some bite to it theologically and things like that or gambling. Those are really the only areas in which white evangelical Republicans are more conservative than your Republicans writ large, but on everything else, like, and that's why I keep saying, like, you can't, we, they're, they're the same thing. Like they're basically the same thing on every issue that matters. Cause we're not going to vote on gambling nationwide anytime soon. We might vote on marijuana, but I don't think we will federally, but you know, like those are all the only issues where you're really going to see white evangelicals be like a specific type of values voters, which is like a term we should just get rid of. Cause it doesn't mean anything anymore. You're, you know, white evangelicals vote for Republicans because they're Republicans. Like that's the worst thesis for a, a New York times yes. op-ed ever. Um, but that's the, that's the facts. Like that's the case. And so yeah. let's, let's stop talking about it differently than that. It was less systematic than yours, and it's more anecdotal, but I interviewed five or six white evangelical Trump voters for my old show, Depolarize, um, back in 2017. And I came to that conclusion through those five or six interviews was like, they just have a Republican worldview. And so I would go through all these different topics and it was like, no, we didn't just vote for abortion or, you know, no, it wasn't just this. It's like it's they would bring up one or more of them brought up every basic policy position of the Republican party at one point or another. And I Mm -hmm. had to conclude that they're just Republicans. And so like, 
even though Trump on his surface was so different than every other Republican candidate for decades or maybe ever, you know, uh, tons of affairs, you know, coarse language, really mean, you know, didn't have that kind of like, um, you know, the conservative. He's not uh, conservative in his personality, put it that way. None of that stuff. But he was still close enough to and, and he's their candidate. He's their nominee. So it was just like, well, yeah, I'm going to vote for him. Mm-hmm. And so in one sense, that is a reframing of the problem for a lot of us younger people who are raised evangelical, which is like, OK, so here, let me put it this way. The problem I used to think of how to frame the problem with Trump was how can you support someone who's so anti-Christian for political office? Now, I think the way that I would frame the problem is how can you align so thoroughly with one political party and way of seeing the world that you can't discriminate between that and a candidate who does not fit that or who or like how come that isn't enough to wake you up? Why wasn't Trump enough to wake you from your Republican slumber is maybe another it's a slight it's a slightly different way of putting the problem that actually seems to be more data driven. What do you mm-hmm. think about that? I actually just yesterday I, I looked at my wife at one point and I said, I wish I could believe it. Uh, I could believe in anything as much as people believe in Donald Trump. Like I don't, I don't believe in anything in this world as much as people believe in Donald Trump. And it is astounding to me. Like I, I liked Obama. I think Obama was wrong on a couple of really big things, right? Like right. I admire him as a human being for where he came from, for what he stands for, for what he did. I think he was a great president as a human being. Like I think he, if he was a if he was Donald Trump's like personal life, Donald Trump would be a lot better human being in my mind than what he is, right? One wife, two kids, you know, for all matters, a good family man, treated people with respect and kindness. Like you watch videos of him dealing with little kids in the West Wing and the Oval Office. It's like, oh my gosh, like this guy is a great human being. Donald Trump has none of those qualities. None. He is like, there's no warmth in Donald Trump. I don't know how people can see him and go, that guy's warm or jovial or kind. Like none of, he's none of those things, but people love him, not in spite of that, but because of that. Like, that's the amazing thing to me is that, listen, I grew up evangelical and I think like, I miss being evangelical so much because the world made perfect sense when I was an evangelical. Like Mm. why things happen, what my place was, what my goal and purpose was every single day of my life. I knew exactly what it was because that's what the Bible told me what it was. Like I miss that warm embrace of evangelicalism and I get why people have the warm embrace of MAGA Trump. Like I get that. I cannot believe that, but I wish I could believe in something as much as they do. And I don't think any politician for whatever reason is as good at creating that sort of ethos as he was. And I think, and this is what scares me, imagine if you had a Trump-like, except who was really good at governing. Like, that is a nightmare scenario that we have not seen yet. Trump was really, really good at politicking and very, very bad at governing. Thank goodness, right? Thank goodness for that. If he's very, very good at governing too, we got a serious problem on our hands. Yeah. I just, I just wonder, I wonder, I wonder if that can be replicated, like that cultish Thing that Trump has, can someone bottle that and replicate it to that level again? And what does that mean for American democracy? One of the explanatory threads for why people liked him that shows up 
it seems to me very clearly in the survey data is this issue of racial resentment. Mm-hmm. What do we know and what are the measures? Let's start with what what measures do people use? I know Robert Jones at, at PRRI does a bunch of this. So like, what exactly is used to measure racial resentment? Because I think that that's helpful to know going in. And yeah. then what does that data show us? Yeah. So measuring racism is like one of the hardest things we can do from a social science perspective because right. it's just fraught with – you know, operationalization problems, you know, measurement problems, social desirability bias, all these things that you talk about, like in research methods class. So we, what we try to do is try to back into it, like from other ways, like, no, just say, are you racist? Do you hate black people? Like, do you use the N word? You know, like you can't ask people that question because they're going to say, no, no, I'm, you know, I love everybody. So what we try to do is sort of like back into the fringes of what racism is. And really one of the components of race of racism is racial resentment which is that you are mad. Like for instance, you're mad that black people are poor, like that they, you know, they should not be poor right now that this, you know, they they're blaming the system for making them poor. So things like you'll ask them questions like Italian, Irish, and Jewish immigrants can, overcame prejudice. Black should do the same. Do you, you know, strongly disagree, strongly agree anywhere in between. And that question is supposed to tap into this idea where like it's, you can couch it a different way. But really what you're saying is black people just, they should do better. They're just lazy. Like that's really what it comes down to. Other groups have solved this problem. They have been unable to solve it. Yes. Why are you so dumb? Like that's really what the subtext is. Dumb, lazy, morally, whatever. Yeah. 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 And I will say this, like I don't love the racial resentment scale, but I also think it's better than anything else we have, which is, you know, it's, this is really hard to do because it, it, I think it's slightly biased against conservatives because conservatives believe in like personal responsibility a lot, Right. right? I also believe in a lot too, by the way, like I'm conservative in that way. But I think it also says like the, the problem with American politics is I think Republicans think it's all your problem and the Democrats think it's all society's problem. It's obviously <laughs> like, both. It's obviously both. Right. And I think the problem is that like you get too much of one and not enough of the other. And you get in, like, why did, you know, Johnny commit rape and murder? Well, because because he's black and grew up poor. Like you can't say that. Right. Like at some point, did that make him more likely to do those things? Probably. But he still Johnny still did those things. Right? He, might so, so, he might have also had a personality disorder, for instance. Yeah, exactly. Which, which is. Pretty much just a genetic lottery, right? And it's exactly right. Right. Yeah. Yeah. There's all kinds of causes. Yeah, exactly. There's multiple causes. I think Republicans think there's no cause, but your choice. And I think Democrats think you don't have like agency and like making your own choices. Right. So racial resentment tries to like cut through all that stuff and say like, okay, how much do you think it's their problem? And how much do you think it's, it's like society's problem? And if you look at, you know, like different religious groups, like it really falls well onto the political ideology scale, right? So white evangelicals have the highest level of racial resentment, and then like atheists and agnostics have the lowest level of racial resentment, which makes sense, by the way, because one is very, very liberal and one is very, very conservative. Now, yeah. Just looking at these five these five prompts, you know, you the Italian Jewish one you did. Uh, yeah. racial problems are rare, isolated situations. Uh-huh. White people have advantages because of their skin color. And generations of slavery created conditions that make it difficult for African-Americans to get ahead. In one sense, these are they are measuring race, but they're also just measuring the extent to which you believe in systemic injustice of any kind, racial, economic, whatever. And to to play a little angel's advocate on behalf of conservatives, which you were kind of hinting at is conservatives, libertarians, they just don't believe that much in in systems anyway they think that systems maybe sometimes they'll go this way sometimes systems will go that way and so we should just 
sort of cancel all that out and make it so that people can be most free in their own determination. And, you know, I don't agree with that. Like I, I don't, from a political economy sense, I like Rawls's uh, veil of ignorance model where you imagine you're going to be born at some place. Like, don't you want to be born somewhere near the middle? Mm -hmm. Um, Don't you want an even fairly even distribution? I'm convinced by that, but that is not the same as racism, right? So that, cause that could be about taxation. It can be about uh, religious Liberty. It can be about a lot of things. So yeah, I get what you're saying that like, this might be the best thing we have, but it would be cool to get something that is about, and maybe it's impossible because the racism that is being decried today rightfully is institutional racism. Mm -hmm. Whereas, uh, and, and same was in, in civil rights movement, I suppose a lot of like straight up laws, you know, lunch counters and, you know, back of the bus and all that stuff, all the Jim Crow stuff. So maybe there's no way around it that like you just, but it does seem like racial resentment is not the best term for that because yeah. it's really something more like calling it the systemic racism scale would make me feel better about it than the <laughs> racial resentment scale. Cause it, you know what I'm saying? Yeah, no, I listen, I, I, I wrote a piece of RNS religion news service using that racial resentment scale. And I, you know, kind of let it go away for a while. And then all of a sudden some big, anonymous alt-right Twitter account, like pointed that out and like started pointing out all the flaws and racial resentment and all this kind of stuff. And he brought like the, the egg Twitter mob after me. And I literally had like Twitter hit me so much. and said, you're going to a lot of notifications. You want to turn some off right now? Like it was like 200 comments about like how they hate me and I'm a liberal and yada, 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 and all this stuff. And I'm like, guys, I didn't create the scale. Like you can yell at me all you want. It's just what exists. And I get it. Like I get why I get why people are like, listen, I think that people who are individualists are not always racist. Okay, like I think those two things are different. They're not the Venn diagram doesn't over, overlap perfectly. It's not entirely overlapping, right? Yeah, it doesn't. But I do think there's a lot of overlap between totally. people who believe in individual responsibility. Like I think that's like, listen, you know, who most libertarians are they're rich white men. <laughs> like, let's right. be completely honest. Yeah, they have a lot of resources. Yeah, yeah, because the system worked for them because they had advantages to begin with. You know, like that's the problem with libertarianism. Most libertarians are people who the system worked really, really well for, and they wanted to keep working well for them, not realizing that it works really, really poorly for huge swaths of our country. Right. And then the whole mentality is, well, I did well, so you can do well too. And it's like, yeah, but you weren't born the same advantage as I was. And I do, by the way, go back to Rawls. I think Rawls is like one of the most Christian ways to think about politics, 100%. like the of ignorance. It really is because it talks about the least of these and the great reversal. Like all that stuff is tied up in Rawls and his view of like, listen, are you going to be rich or poor? Are you going to be born to smart parents or, you know, uneducated parents? Are you born in the, in, in the inner city or in the rural area? Like you want a system that works for everybody as much as possible to correct those deficiencies that you're born into, right? The differences. And I think that's really yeah. a Christian way to think about politics. The problem is though, that most Americans don't think about politics at all, let alone in that kind of way they think about it, you know? Yeah. So that's interesting. Do you have a theory as to how it happened that the white Protestant and often white Catholic American population came to identify Republican policies with Christian faith in Mm -hmm. a situation where Okay, I can see it on abortion for sure. Yeah. Um, and I, by the way, am I'm some flavor of pro life. I think I, I'm probably I'm near the middle to the extent that one can be in the middle on an issue yeah. like that. 
Yeah. Uh, but I think I'm I'm t- closer to life than choice. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, all in, which makes me also feel very much very politically uh, homeless on that issue. Me too. Me too. Um, you know, so me, I get it on abortion. Uh, I get it on you know LGBTQ issues insofar as a lot of a lot of these Christians are like biblical inerrantists and and the text. You know, I do think that Paul thought it was sinful. I think that Paul was wrong, but uh, you Heretic. know, well, I also think that Peter was wrong about slavery. So it's not, you know, I think they yeah. were all wrong about women, homosexual and homosexuals. I don't preach slavery. about the, out of the epistles at all, by the way, like literally hardly ever, like once a year, probably. Oh, wonderful. Gospels in the Old Testament all the time. That's so great. Uh, yeah. But why is it, what's your theory on how it came to be? Because fiscally, uh, yeah. Republican policies on the face of it are, are quite anti-biblical. In fact, you know, pro- like, I think that's pretty much obvious. So how did it happen? How did the, how did the yeah. GOP succeed? I, I mean, obviously they wanted that. They found this voter mm-hmm. block. They thought we can get them. And then they did. How did yeah. they succeed at doing that? So I think that what happens over time is that you latch onto a party for one or two good reasons. And then you start aligning everything else in your ideology with the rest of what that party believes, right? So that's the tribalism thing. Yes. So it sort of drags you into it. Like it sucks you in. Like for instance, there's been evidence from California, the state legislature. They tracked Republicans there in the 80s who were pro-abortion but Republicans. But when, you know, anti-abortion became the, you know, the the centerpiece of the Republican Party – what happened were most of those members began to change their views on abortion to line up with the new GOP standard on abortion, right? Okay. So really, you were there because of fiscal issues. The, the the abortion thing was like really a tag along, and then you started realigning your you know the abortion thing to, to so you could be perfectly in sync with your party overall. And I think that happens on both sides. Okay, like you okay. come like, yes that's, exactly that's what white Christians give an, did. Oh, well, example on the left. I started using uh, in typing the term BIPOC, Black Indigenous yes. People of Color. I'll be perfectly honest. I started using it because eno- I saw it written enough times and yes. I figured out what it meant. And I thought, oh, I guess this is the new term. So I started using that term. And then one day I was like, you know, because I have another belief, and this is getting a little bit back into what we were talking about last hour, that every time the left sort of agrees on a new norm that there is a cost. There's an attendant cost with moderates and center right people Mm. that could have electoral consequences. So Mm -hmm. even if it's good. So I I think for instance, the George Floyd protests, people using black lives matter, you know, people aligning with, with that organization. I, I feel like on the whole, that was a good thing for the country. I did it myself. I was this close to buying the Black Sabbath Black Lives Matter t-shirt because it was like the coolest <laughs> logo. Um, yeah. And and I think there was a cost. I mean, I think that that was a, a price worth paying basically sure. because sure. of the injustice, right? But so I thought, well, I want to be a cautionary voice on new nomenclature because of that attendant cost. So if it's worth the cost, then I'll use the new language. When mm-hmm. I have cli- when I will be eventually speaking about transgender clients or people who prefer they pronouns, I will use they pronouns because the the value of being able to care for my clients is worth it. That's worth the trade off. Mm-hmm. But BIPOC, I looked it up and it was just basically like one person, 
I, I, I think it was a woman, one scholar was like, you know what? Not all black and indigenous people consider themselves to be people of color. Let's add them back in. But I realized that when I use the term people of color, I do include black and indigenous people. I include Latino people. I include Asian people. That is what most people mean by that term. And it's what I mean by the term. So I went back. I was like, okay, you know, I'm actually not going to adopt this. I read an article about it and I was like, there is insufficient gain here to offset the cost of like people feeling alienated who aren't woke. So to me, I was like, no, I'm still good with people of color. I'm, I mean it in the way that most people mean it. It does include black people. It does include indigenous people there. It, it just includes them all. So I, so I just decided to stop using that, but I started using it just out of a tribal identity. I was like, Oh, people I respect are using this. I'll start using it even before I knew what it meant I, or, yeah. you know, basically knew what it meant and then just adopted it kind of unthinkingly. So you're saying that like you are uh, susceptible to peer pressure, Dan, like little kids <laughs> are on the playground. Yes. I'm a tri- I'm a tribal, I'm a tribal being. I'm a human being. There's no way around it. Well, and I think academia is in some ways a very rigid tribe. Like yeah. I think the, the walls for academia are very strong in terms of like what's acceptable in like, like I always joke with people like I'm liberal in like the general sense, but in academia, I'm super conservative. Right. Like I'm, I'm, I'm to the right of the average academic because of like how left leaning acad- I, I, I just, I don't like the trope of academia. Like that's I think it's a big academia. problem. I think it's a big problem for people trusting what scholars find out. I mean, I I'm with Jonathan Haidt on his heterodox Academy stuff. I think that yeah. it's a bad scene when 90% of psychologists identify as liberal. Wait, that's you know, not good is, for psychology. No, it's not good for the students either, by the way, it's not yeah. good for, and it's not good for the right half of the com- country that yes. will increasingly distrust therapists when they need a therapist. Like it's, so, so, that's what yeah. it has to come down. That it's like, it's a very similar thing to the sort of electoral consequences, right? Like, in fact, it's a clearer argument for something like psychology to me, like my political moderate sort of general view. Some people will say, look, yeah, you got to win independence, but turning out the base might be more important mathematically. And you know what? They might be right. They could mm-hmm, be right about mm-hmm. that. But you know yep. what is definitely true? I need a MAGA Trump guy who has a narcissism issue to see a therapist. I yes. need that guy to trust a therapist. Yes. And to the extent that psychology becomes Meryl Streep at the Academy Awards making fun of football and calling it – I don't know if you remember. This is from a few years ago. But her like, yeah, yeah, yeah. all these men in spandex hitting each other or whatever. It's like, OK, this is how we lose, Meryl. Uh, this is how <laughs> – you know, like to the extent that it becomes that, we're f- and now no. we have a whole half of the country who will not utilize services that they need. So that's the sense in which I, I'm trying to devalue signaling so that we can value actual services rendered and, and utilized by people. See, your, your situation is different, though, because like your profession actually like can bring people back from the brink, right? Suicide, depression, you know, anxiety, all these things. Ideally. Like like, yeah, ideally, like that's, that's the, I mean, I guess we're like political science is less practical than that. Like we can't, you know, sure. like we're, we're not as effective that way, but the problem is with us is people think that like, we're the tip of the spear when it comes to like Charlie Kirk left, you know, leftists on campus. Like, you know who it is? 
the anthropologists, the sociologists, the English professors, they're the ones who talk about politics in class more than we do. And when they talk about it, they often talk about it in a non-informed way, but like a very partisan hmm. kind of, to be honest with you, hacky kind of way, like yeah. not really showing both sides. Like here's what both sides believe. Like, do I talk about politics in class? Oh my gosh. Yes. All the time. But my students trust me to know that I'm going to give them sort of like, okay, here's the objective read on like what this is and why this is happening. And like, I even tell them, I go, guys, I'm going to try to give you both sides. When I think both sides have a very good argument, like a good faith argument of why they do this or why they do that. And if they don't, I'm going to tell you, I think this is a stupid argument. Like, like for instance, like, in, I'll give you a good example, Pennsylvania. Why did, why did it take so long to count the votes in Pennsylvania? It took so long to count the votes because the state legislature in Pennsylvania, which is run by a Republican, said you can't start counting mail-in votes until the 7 a.m. on election day, not 10 days before, because they wanted to try to you know, hurt the integrity of mail-in voting. Like you can't spin that any other way than that way. But there are also times when I say like, okay, the Republicans have a good point on this because, you know, like taxation does hurt innovation in some ways and it can't hurt people if it's, you know, poorly, t- you know, like there's ways to talk yeah, about or public- immigration caps. Like there's a yes. legitimate question. How diverse can a community get before it becomes radicalized? Exactly. And right. I don't mean radicalized Islam. Yeah. I mean, radicalized white yes. nationalists. So that's an interesting question. Yes. And there might be some kind of nice kind of ratio you can mm-hmm. find. And if so, it would be good for political scientists to know that for city planners to know yeah. that, you know, for immigration officials to know that uh, that's a conservative viewpoint. But if it ends up being true and it leads to people joining <laughs> militias and hate groups of some sort or other, and it leads to hate crimes on these, you know, Middle Eastern immigrants yeah. or whatever. Well, I, I don't want that. Yeah. So if the data can help avoid that, then let's use, you know, and so you need these have to be open questions, especially when they're not even really disagreements on values. They're just disagreements on policy. Can those policy disagreements be used as a smokescreen to be racist? Yes, they can. But defeat them as policy ideas. And that way, everyone will know that you won. If you just attack it as, well, I think this guy's just trying to be racist. Maybe the guy's trying to be racist, but if you defeat the policy idea, then it doesn't matter. I'll give you, you, I'll give you a great example. You know, people say we should have like our system should look like Sweden or Denmark or Norway, Scandinavian country, like our taxation system in terms of social safety net and things like that. You know, the reality is those countries are like 90% white, 95% like white Lutherans. Like they're all, and you're much more willing to have your taxes raised to pay for someone who looks like you than someone who does not Mm -hmm. look like you. Is that racist? Yes, but you can't make people not racist. Like that's who we are. You know, like we're tribally messed up that way. So we talk about why, why are people, why are Americans opposed to raising taxes? Because white people don't want their money to go into people of color. Like that's really what it comes down to. No. And yeah. the problem is you can talk about that in all kinds of ways. Like why we should, well, then we should get rid of racism. It's like, yeah, we should also make gravity turn upside down. Like you just can't, these are like constant, you know what I mean? They're not going away. So let's work. On that. I like proposals that like, for instance, David Brooks is always talking about, which is a, a, a national service requirement for young people out of high school, basically mm-hmm. that, you know, a lot of these, and a lot of those Scandinavian countries have mandatory military service for two yep. years, year yep. or two. And what he says is like, look, this is a backdoor approach to a lot of that stuff. So if everybody does this, they engage in service projects. It's the kind of thing that conservatives can get behind because their children are basically volunteering for a non-combative military force. But then they're doing social programs. 
and they're doing basically teach America type stuff where they're working on infrastructure or, you know, whatever. And they're mixing with other people from across the country, people of color that they didn't have access to in their rural town. And all of a sudden you're like checking all these boxes at once. But that's a pretty centrist idea yeah. of like, well, requiring service. Well, that might be a, a, you know, that you could argue that that's a burden on the poor. There's probably a way to do it such that it's actually uplifting. Mm -hmm. You know, you, you have to get into that stuff. But like, I'm I'm interested in ideas like that, that that use they use the psychology of both parties in their positive yeah. sense to combine into something that can do yeah. good. But I want to move on in the interest of time. We got to talk about this David French yeah. piece because I've read a lot of stuff on evangelicals and Trump. And his piece, I think, has been, at least in a short form, the most helpful thing, the most clarifying thing, bringing it all together that I have read in five years on this topic. And of course, he quotes three of your articles in his piece. So his piece and then your three articles are all linked in the show notes here. But there's some little excerpts of the French piece that I want to just bring out and chat with you about. So here's the first one, and it's about and it's about tribalism. So I'm going to quote him. In our hyperpolarized society, Republicans increasingly tend to live around Republicans and Democrats live around Democrats. Thus, for many millions of white evangelicals, their politics is not an impediment to their Christian witness. Quite the contrary, it is a social lubricant. It facilitates the formation of political relationships and helps bond the Christian to his or her community, end quote. Yeah. The question is, if you're not a Republican, what's wrong with you? You know, like that's, the, right. that's what like it becomes like you're dumb for not being a Republican. Right. Like I think that's like so in 1976, half of white weekly churchgoers were Democrats and 35 percent were Republicans. And then it switched. And now 50 percent are Republicans and 25 percent are Democrats. Like I I think that neither of them are a good mix, by the way. I think a good mix is, you know, like 40, 40, 20. Like that would be a good mix on Sunday morning and not, by the way, yeah. churches where it's 90, 10 and then one that's, you know, 10, 90, like where every church has a nice contingent of Democrats and a nice contingent of Republicans and people who don't know what they are. Like that used to be the church was a great place for people to have a, a good spirited but kind conversation about politics and policy. And now all we have are white evangelical echo chambers where there's no way you can become a Democrat because no one's even going to be advocating for democratic principles in a white even. So you don't even get to hear the other side. So what happens is you demonize the other side, you mischaracterize the other side, and you straw man the other side. You don't really hear the other side, right? Remember whenever you were growing up white evangelical and they said like, okay, if you're going to do evangelism and they say this thing. Here's what you say in response. It's like you are already making the arguments for the other person. You're not listening to them. You're looking through your Rolodex saying, how can I respond to you? That's not what dialogue is about. It's about me giving you a gift by having a conversation with you and you giving me a gift by responding to me. We're listening to each other in a mutually beneficial you know, situation. Churches don't have that anymore. It's leftists are dumb. Liberals are dumb. Democrats are dumb. You can't be a Christian and be a Democrat. So we're all Republicans. Yay. Like that is so incredibly toxic 
And by the way, I would say the exact same thing if it was all Democrats, like the white Christian church was all Democrats. I would say the exact same thing. The church needs to be politically diverse because if you think that one party speaks for Christianity, then you have not been paying attention to American history or recent American history when it comes to politics. Do you think that there is a multiplying effect of a problem in particular in evangelicalism because of the way that that religious group sees something like the gospel, where there's a level of in and out and a level of certainty of arguments and their validity, you know, the way that apologetics is used in these communities. Like I'm, what I'm asking is, is there something about that sort of epistemic that knowledge approach to the world that then when you combine that with just the normal forces of tribalism as these groups sort and sort and sort into being more ideologically similar, is that also like more fuel for the fire, particularly in evangelicalism that you wouldn't find maybe among agnostics or, you know, like non-practicing Jews or something yeah, like I that? Yeah, I think that it's, you know, the white evangelical, like we talked about, it's like, People who who did not grow up white evangelical don't realize like it's a subculture, like it's a it's a it's nested inside the larger culture, but it has its own books, its own movies, its own T-shirts, its own stars, right? Like its own celebrities, parallel institutions, yes, its own inst- yeah. like you go to Wheatner, Calvin or, you know, like some nice evangelical institution, right? You don't go to like a, a public school like those are dangerous. Like you create this insular environment. And what happens is like you just dropped Republicanism in that in the 70s. And it just like sort of like expanded and multiplied inside that host, a habitable host, by the way, very, you know, like perfect environment for it to like sort of grow and spread and get worse and more virulent. That's exactly what happened in. And there's no like that's the problem is there's no there's no roads into that subculture now to try to impact that subculture and turn it the other way. And here's what I think is really fascinating. I think there's this rift in American evangelicalism between the elite evangelicals and the rank and file yes. evangelicals, right? Like your Tim Kellers oh, yeah. and your Rick Warrens and your Ed Stetzers and your Christianity Today, right? Because I write for them sometimes. So I have to be very cognizant of this. They want me to write things that talk about, you know, they're sort of critical of the Republican Party yeah. sometimes, which I appreciate, obviously. But the, the same point, you can't be too critical overall, which I also appreciate at the same time. But I also understand this. The rank and file evangelicals do not read Christianity Today anymore. It's only the elites, like the academic evangelicals who read that stuff anymore. The rank and file watch Hannity and Tucker and Laura Ingram every night. Like that's where they get their knowledge from. They're, the elites actors are not being influential on them anymore. The Fox News and the Newsmax and the OAN and the and the Facebook, the le- the right wing Facebook is what's causing them to shape their political ideology more than rank, you know, the elite evangelicals ever could. And now they're at a crossroads because elite evangelicals don't want to shut up and they shouldn't about, you know, things like immigration, for instance. But their their words literally change nothing. So what do you do? Like, where do you go from there? And I think that's really the crisis facing evangelicalism is this elite versus rank and file disconnect. It's only getting worse over time. hundred percent. I have no idea what the solution is. There are no inroads into that. It's like a subculture that is now a missile silo yes. and it is completely walled off. And that is why some people say it just needs to die as a subculture, not, of course, all the sure. people in it, but that it just needs to wane in power. And that might be true. And and 
a larger share of evangelicals getting into QAnon. You know, I think that this is all symptomatic of that, that there's like, there's just no way in for a certain type of evangelical to even talk about media literacy or, you know, any of that stuff. But one thing that I thought was so interesting about this quote from French is it explains in a way that nothing else had yet for me that I'd read the differential personal experience of, let's say, the average millennial post-evangelical and the average boomer evangelical, that we look at them and go, how this is an insane cognitive dissonance between your faith that you brought me up with and your current stances on these issues. And for them, the cognitive dissonance would be to consider a democratic stance. Everyone in their life is on board. That is the that's the particular value of that passage for me, especially is like the it would be the opposite for yeah. them if they accepted some some left leaning stuff. It would they would be the pariah among the people they are ministering to the friends of theirs that they are inviting to church. Those friends would not come if they were Democrats. Yeah. So it's like. We are literally living in two Americas in that sense. For sure. And I see so many pastors go on Facebook and be, I mean, completely overtly OAN Newsmax political, like not even hiding it or couching it and never giving a hard time to the Republican Party, giving a hard time to the to the establishment Republican Party if anybody catches more of it, right? So it's like, it's like saying, and I want to say to these pastors, do, do you think that people who are liberal deserve the gospel? Do they deserve salvation? Because you're acting right now like they don't deserve salvation because like we talked about, their politics and their theology are so wed together, they can't even see the fact that other people disagree with them. I want to be like, do you think Martin Luther King Jr. was a Christian? Because the way that you're talking, you're thinking that he was a heretic because he was a Democrat. You know, like because someone has a different theology than you, they're wrong. Like I had a conversation with this guy in my church one time. We were talking about whether Jesus was perfect or whether he was sinless. And I think Jesus was sinless, but not perfect. Like, I think he like forgot the keys, right? Or whatever, you know, like he, he left the stove on or whatever. Like, I think he was imperfect that way. And I go, I just think he, he was imperfect. He goes, well, then you're wrong. Not that I disagree with you, right? Or my understanding is different than yours. It's I'm right and you're wrong. That's the, see, evangelicalism thrives on that, by the way, which is I'm right. And when you're talking about things like salvation, you've got to be right and wrong. Like either you're going in or you're not. Yeah, that's what I was kind of yeah. getting at with that question. Trying yeah, to get at, like yeah. that's the issue is when you think black – to be evangelical is to be a black and white thinker. Like by definition, it's a black – because, you know, like there's only one pathway to heaven on the way, the truth, and the life, right? Like there's not many pathways or like I'm kind of right. When it comes to politics – It's at least to be black and white on a handful yes. of, of very important yeah. issues. Sure. But even mainland Protestants or Catholics aren't even that black and white on those very key issues though. They're like, eh, it could right. be wrong. Like that's the thing. There's, there's no doubt there. Like I wish you know remember Mark Driscoll? Uh yes, I live in Oh my Seattle. gosh, then you remember Mark Driscoll. Some large portion of my friend group has been adversely affected yeah, by him. Like yeah. like the thing is like yeah. he is so sure of himself. Like he is so sure of himself from the pulpit that people love that. And you know what? That terrified me. Like something's broken in me. Yeah. Like oh, when yeah. I see that surety, I run the other way. Like I think that's really like talk about psychology to go back to psychology is like when you see someone be so confident and so sure in what they believe, does that make you stronger towards them or does that repel you from them? It now repels you. Yeah. But I think something personality wise draws people and Trump is like he's a sure he's a sure guy. 
Yeah. You know what I mean? Like, and I think yeah. people like that about Trump. Like they like that about evangelical preachers because remember we talked about this. They like John Hagee helps your life make sense because you got the dispensations and the seven mountains and all the, all that, this is what this means and all this kind of stuff. People want that surety and they want politicians and pastors who provide that surety for them when Democrats, I think by and large are repulsed by that confidence and that surety. Yeah. I feel like I want to be careful about painting any large yeah. group. But I think I would be comfortable saying to the extent that you are the kind of person who really needs that kind of certainty around religious yep. issues, to that extent, you are also more susceptible to conspiracy theories like mm-hmm. Q and I. We actually have found that empirically, by the way. We had a – yeah, so in October, we put a survey in the field. Uh, right before the election, because we were we were going to do a bunch of stuff with the election, but we also get all these questions about Q. Everyone asks us about Q, right? Are evangelicals more than more likely to believe in Q or less likely to believe in Q? Because there's actually some good. So here's the, the here's the two theories. I think they're both really good. One is that Q is a replacement for a secularizing society, right? So we don't have Jesus anymore. We got to have something to fill that void, like that God shaped hole, like Tycho Brahe talked about, whatever, right? That's one theory. The other theory is that evangelicals are more susceptible to believe in Q because they already believe in magical thinking, right? Authoritarian magical thinking. And I don't want, I'm not thinking like, listen, I'm also, I believe in Jesus. Okay. So I'm not like disparate. Yeah. You may, you brought that up earlier. I was like, no, oh, it's magical he thinking though. Pastor, like, you right? believe, like, listen, Sir and Kierkegaard talk about the leap of faith, right? Like you have to, you have to jump through a huge hoop of irrationality to believe in Christianity. You got to believe a guy performed miracles, died and came back from the dead. You, and then ascended to heaven. Like that's magical thinking by any definition of the word. And I believe in it. Okay. Because once you jump to that hoop, then life makes a lot more sense on the other side, right? Like, cause you have systematic theology yeah. and good and bad and sinful. Listen, I understand I'm a magical thinker too. It's not a bad <laughs> thing, but it's magical thinking. Yeah. Like think of what it is like from a purely sociological standpoint, it's magical thinking. Okay. But Q is also magical thinking, right? That this guy on the internet has like deep knowledge of like the inner workings of, you know, the government or whatever. So maybe evangelicals are more predisposed because they're already predisposed to this sort of magical type of thinking. Well, we found that a born again Christian, we ask a thermometer scale, zero meaning very cold towards Q, a hundred being very warm towards Q and 50 meaning like neither hot nor cold. The average evangelical scored 49 towards Q and the average person, non-evangelical, scored 29 uh, for Q. So we're talking definitely evangelicals are more predisposed towards Q than non-evangelicals. The issue, though, is that Q is a partisan conspiracy. It's a right-wing conspiracy, right? And we know that white evangelicals are conservative, right? So how much can we extricate from the political side versus the conspiracy side? And we're working on how to like think about that like from a methodological perspective, ways to like, break that apart. But it does seem like the evangelicals are more – predisposed to think about Q than, than like secularists, like agnostics and atheists are not Q lovers. So it's not a replacement for religion. It's more like an accoutrement, like a side dish to like American religion, especially conservative religion. Oh, that's really interesting. Back to this French piece. There's another bit here that is kind of related that also helps me. There is a sense in which for political and social conservatives, they already feel so alienated by the left. Mm. Let me, I'll quote him again. When they hear pastors or critics talk about the public witness of the faith, they see it not in terms of relationships with friends and neighbors, which are just fine. And that's because they're all agreeing. Their friends and neighbors are also Republicans. 
but rather they see it as a vain attempt to appeal to a community that would never like them anyway. The media, distant blue America, and the elite academy, end quote. I mean, I think that sentence is right. I mean, that, that seems true to me that if you're in this kind of red state America, you already feel like these people think you're stupid. They might hate you. They certainly don't have your best interests at heart. And I think it doesn't take very long on Twitter or Facebook to have that confirmed by your your little far left nephew or whatever and the shit he yeah. posts. Or, you know what I mean? Like it's it's not hard to find evidence that they don't really care about you that no, much. No, I think that's I think that's the problem. Look, I know like this is like a trope and people talk about it all the time, but the media is a bubble, especially the big media conglomerates like the Post and the Times and the Journal and you know, like they those people most of those reporters grew up like in in the Excel corridor. They grew up in upper middle class families. They went to better, you know, good schools all the way through K through yeah. you know college. They've never lived in Omaha, Nebraska, right? Or rural Illinois. Where the world looks a lot different than them, and they cannot understand evangelicalism as a concept except as an intellectual idea they think is stupid. Like they don't understand the culture part as much as they understand the theology part, right? I think that's the disconnect is where our media comes from is not where huge chunks of Americans live at, right? And and they do feel – and by the way, like Larry – you know where Larry the Cable Guy, the comedian Larry the Cable Guy? Yeah, Larry the Cable yeah. Guy was the best-selling comedian in America for three years in a row 10 years ago because he figured out how to appeal to that big swath of red America in the middle, and he did 30,000-seat concerts every single weekend, okay? Because there's a market for I think that Fox News is another example yes. of this. I think that they filled a yes. gap. Like, yeah, I don't like – I think Fox News is journalistically the, – the cable channel. I think the website is not yeah. as bad. The journalists who work for the website are not – Nearly as bad. But the the cable news channel, Fox News, is like a lot of that stuff is done in very bad faith. I really dislike it. I think it's incredibly fear mongering. Mm-hmm. In, in, and I, yeah, MSNBC is fear mongering, too, in its own way. But what I'm saying is not about that. So I'm morally opposed to, you know, Carlson and Hannity in, on almost every level. But man, did they find that there was a vacuum in the market <laughs> And exploit that. I mean, in terms of a business idea, it's one of the best business ideas of the last 50 oh, years. I, I, listen, Rupert Murdoch's a genius. And I don't care what anybody says. You can you can decry him for the, what happened. But I will say this. He did stick to his guns here in the last couple of weeks and say, we're not going to give in to the conspiracy theories. And even, you know, Laura Ingram said, we can't believe in this fantasy anymore. That's not going to exist. And you know what happened? A good chunk of his network, his viewership left and went to Newsmax and OAN to get what they wanted. Exactly. Not what the actual news yep. was. So, like, this is the problem. Yep. It's like you create Frankenstein and it ends up destroying your lab. That's what Fox News yeah. did, and we can go boo-hoo, sad for them, but they created that monster. Okay, they created it. I agree. And that's their problem. Like, I do not uh, – listen, if if you want to know what rural America is like, you need to go to a doctor's office, a nursing home, a dentist's office, and see what's on the TV because it's Fox News 24-7. Like, it is nonstop pumped into your brain. And when I take my dog for a walk at night sometimes during the – when it's nicer outside, I can, like, look in people's houses and see what's on the big screen TV – and I swear to you, Fox News is either Cardinal game because I live in Cardinal country, baseball, or it's it's Fox News. And that is like you cannot overestimate how much that has impacted the way people think because they don't give they they don't they're not honest brokers of the other side. They give you nothing but one side. And listen, 
I will say this, MSNBC and, and CNN don't give you the other side very well either, but they at least at least CNN tries to give you some of the other side sometimes. Fox gives yeah. you, they used to have Handy and Combs. Combs is gone. Like the Democrat is gone off Fox. Because you know what people are complaining about? Who is that Combs weird looking guy talking about them liberal things? Give me more of that Hannity guy because I want to be reinforced, right? That's the problem is, but listen, here's the problem. If it's not Fox, it's Facebook. And you can you can cater your Facebook to how crazy you want to be on both sides, where yep. you see nothing but far left or nothing but far right. Listen, this sounds awful. The media was better when you had fewer choices because you had to take what they gave you, which was you know more general news. And now you can cater the news to your own predispositions. And listen, I'm a big believer of like long cycle theory. Like we go through cycles of like a lot of polarization, then a lot of unification, then back to polarization. I think that the, the technology has broken long cycle theory. Like, I think we're stuck into eternal ultra polarization now. And I don't know if there's an end in sight because the mechanisms we have for information now we've never had before. And they've been weaponized now like they never have been before. And you you can go your entire life and not hear anybody from the other side anymore. I mean, think about it. Facebook is not conservative enough. Now they have Parler. Even though the ten, eight of the top 10 stories on, on Facebook every day, they're shared the most are from conservative outlets. That's not conservative enough. You got to go to Parler now because they won't censor you over there. Which, by the way, little aside, there are censoring people on Parler now because they were posting pictures of crap, like literal turds. And there was a trending hashtag right in Donald Trump in Georgia, and they censored that hashtag because the Senate race. So there is censorship there too, by the way. Yeah, I'm trying to avoid reading or learning anything about Parler. You don't. You don't want to go. You don't, imagine like Facebook without with, with few, even fewer guardrails. And that's what Parler right. is. Like Diamond and Silk are huge yeah. like, personalities on Parler. Is there any data? And I, now we're just I'm just asking you. The thing with Fox News blaring all the time, and and you hear these anecdotes all the time. A family member of mine was staying at a house where the grandma was staying there too, and she just has it on all day long. We've all heard these stories: people's in laws, their parents, whatever. When I try to watch Fox News, and I occasionally do, just like out of, you know, to get some sense of what's going on, it feels like drinking poison to me immediately. And I genuinely struggle to understand, to not judge people who like it as somehow defective. Should I think of them as drug addicts where, you know, like if I felt the experience of crack cocaine withdrawal, I would maybe never want to do crack, but I might already be addicted or something. You know, like, I don't know how to think about it. it it's so beyond my lived experience. Yeah. And again, this is the polarization because yeah. I don't have that cultural resentment that it I don't get dopamine hits from Fox News. But these people obviously do get dopamine hits or they wouldn't listen to it every watch it every night. What do we know mm -hmm. about people's experience of feeling heard by a insanely angry fear-mongering news source yeah. i watched that tommy laren like she said those videos on like facebook like a blonde a blonde attractive younger woman just yeah. yelled stuff right. I, I looked at everybody and go what is she so angry about like i cannot be that angry about anything in my life and she's angry all the time like the outrage is just unbelievable I do have some data on how like a Fox News watching Republican is different than a non-Fox News watching Republican. I give you a sense okay. of like, what Fox does to people. Yeah. Let's hear that. It makes you more anti-immigrant. That, that probably doesn't come as much as a surprise. But that's really right. – like what's really interesting is like on other issues, it matters 
a lot less than you would think it does. For instance, like on the estate tax, the difference between the two groups is only 4% in terms of support for the estate tax, like very, very small. But on things like build a wall on the southern border, it's 14%. On um, family separation, it's 12%. So, you know, like it's it gets bigger. It's in the double digits on a lot of immigration issues. It doesn't matter a lot on things like abortion or like economic issues, but it matters a lot on immigration issues, which tells you like that's what Fox is doing. Now, there's a causal argument there that's interesting, right, which is that does Fox make you more anti-immigrant or are you anti-immigrant than you watch Fox I think that you can't – you have to say that like people who are anti – let's say the anti-immigrant people that are more anti-immigrant watch Fox. That means they're also being reinforced by Fox though, right? So like, like sure. Fox is definitely playing a role in this whole situation, and it's definitely on immigration. Like that's been Fox News. It has pulled the Republican Party to the right on immigration. There is no doubt in my mind that's a thing, and it shows up in the data. Yeah. Yeah. It's so interesting, man. It's – uh, I don't really <laughs> – I don't know how much more I have to say. I just am feeling when I think about this stuff, it is profoundly saddening. One, one thing that I actually am going to bring up with my therapist next time I talk with them is I'm feeling a little angry at God recently. Mm. I'm angry at the limits of rationality <laughs> in people. Mm-hmm. And I, I'm angry that that evidence does not change mm. minds. I'm angry that we are so bad at being spiritually formed into mature people, emotionally and spiritually formed. I'm just, I'm angry at what appear to be pretty hard limits. Like put it this way. There are so many posts that I don't put on Facebook because I know it will be a waste of time. I'm angry that I know that it will be a waste of time. Like I'm angry that it will be one and that I know that. And like, I'm, I guess I'm, I grieve the loss of hope at people changing based on a good argument. I have changed my mind many times based on good arguments. In fact, my wife sometimes gives me shit for that. Like she thinks I'm not steadfast uh-huh. enough and we laugh uh-huh. about it, but I think it's yeah, good you that you can change your mind. On, you know, right. And she, you know, uh, it's, it's more of a joke now than anything, but, and if you're not my therapist and I don't need, you don't need to pretend to be one, but that's just, that's kind of where I'm at. I feel like ending this on a little bit of a personal note here feels feels more appropriate to me yeah. for some reason that I'm just I'm grieving this yeah. stuff and it and I'm I'm angry that such limits exist and I don't I wonder if it was my evangelical upbringing that taught me that those limits shouldn't mm. exist. I wonder if that's mm. part of it. I haven't thought about that, but maybe like I was taught you show someone the evidence and they'll become a Christian yeah. because the evidence yeah. is there. And it's and overwhelming it's like, well, too. The evidence no. Is. And the evidence is overwhelming. If you just open your eyes, obviously a creator yeah. did all this, you know, however you want to phrase that stuff. So I don't know. You, you can take that. You could either disclose your own feelings or not, <laughs> yeah. whatever you want to respond. Yeah, no. So here's where I, I've been thinking like that I basically turned inward and said, like, I want to just focus on me and my career and my advancement and in, in all those things, kind of things. But then I also and this is what sucks is I realize I can do that because I'm privileged because I'm a white male, upper middle class academic, which yeah. makes me mad because then I can't even give up. You know what I mean? Like, it, like I, I'm stuck between I want to just not worry about these things. Then I feel guilty for not worrying about these things because I'm worried. I'm advocating for those people who can't advocate for themselves, which I feel like is something we all should do as human beings. But also as Christians, right. I just I just feel stuck at some point, and it's it's some it sucks. But I, selfish as it is, 
I just fall back on my privilege more often. And I go, listen, my life has been like, to be honest with you, my, the last 12 months societally has been awful, but personally for me, it's been really, really good. Like I've gotten a lot more exposure. Like the reason I'm doing like this is because David French found me. I've done podcasts. I like, you know, I've been on, you know, all right. these big news outlets. I've gotten eight pubs. I got a book coming out in March. Like all these things are happening for me personally. It's also like, can I not just this year go, this is about me. You know, like this is about me this year. And I, 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 I feel bad for people who don't have it as good, but at some point it's exhausting being so concerned about everybody, you know, about everything about the world. And I can't change 99.9% of it. And is it better for my mental health to go? I'm not going to worry about it. You know what I mean? Like I just get to the point where it's like, I'm sick and tired of worrying about all these things. Maybe I should just worry about myself, but then it makes me feel selfish. And then it just becomes this reinforcing cycle of like, personal, you know, like vindictiveness towards myself. You know, I, I, I don't know a way out of that. The way I think about it is, so there are two things to figure out in terms of not necessarily giving back, but engagement with the world and injustice, whatever. There's like, what percentage of my weekly output or monthly output can I reasonably dedicate to stuff to, to helping situations. Yeah. And of course I think of this podcast as the primary version of that, whether or not it's helpful. And then the second question is, well, where is that effort used well and not wasted? Mm -hmm. So that would be on that side. It's like, probably don't just argue with people on Facebook and Twitter, because mm -hmm. that will probably net zero points towards anything. What's going on locally, you know, before COVID, Actually, before I was doing grad school, before I started grad school, I was doing some tutoring for local – At a, a church had a tutoring program for like you know, poor kids in the neighborhood. That was incredibly meaningful, yep. definitely at least somewhat helpful, at least insofar as you know, I'm not – it's not exactly stand and deliver. I'm not blowing people's minds, these kids' minds, and you know, they're not rising to new academic heights because I spent an hour with them. But the presence of that program is a good thing. And these kids will have better chances at succeeding, you know, in a home where they don't speak yeah. English, for instance, yeah. or whatever. So it's like, and then you're just kind of discerning the level of energy and where to put it and just tweaking that as you yeah. go. I mean, that's how I think of it, although I don't always apply it. Perfectly. The nice thing about being an academic is you can kind of sit back and say, here's what the world looks like. Now you figure out what to do with it. You know, like, I feel like that's kind mm. of my, like, I think like explaining things to people is like one of the most, like a superpower in a lot of ways. It's just like, I, like, I love like, you know, putting a graph or like doing a talk or whatever. Someone goes, it, they see, you can see the light bulb go on in their head. They're like, oh my gosh, like that makes perfect sense now. Like why that is, or like why I don't fit in and why I used to fit in and like how the world changed around me. And I didn't change, they changed, you know, like all those things. Like, I think there's so much power in that because then it kind of gives me the ability to say, okay, here's the information. Now you you know, you figure out how to, how to react to that and, and how to change that and how to, you know, orient yourself in that social space. I'm going to describe the social space to you. But I also, again, it goes back to privilege, right? I had the privilege of just doing that and not feeling actively engaged in that. But also here's the other thing. I'm also a pastor, which means I have to be an honest broker for everybody, regardless of your political persuasion, your theological background, like as an academic and a pastor, I have to say, I don't play for any team. Right. Like I pay for team truth, capital T truth, which is here's the way the world looks like, not the way I wish it was or hope it was or want it to be, but the way it is. And then you, your job is to figure out how to get it to where you want it to be. 
you know, like that's one thing I'm very passionate about is like, I don't want to be an advocate for anything except the data and the truth of the data. Right. And I think that we have so few honest brokers in America anymore. Like everyone's like in the tank for somebody or something. We need people who are in the tank for nobody and nothing. I think that gets you farther in life and actually helps more people by being an honest broker than being, you know, partisan or sided or whatever you want to call it. Yeah, man. Well, that's a pretty good place to end. Ryan, thank you for giving uh, us two hours of your day I, to talk through this. Yeah. Stuff. Can I plug? Uh, yeah. Plug I away. have a book coming out March the 7th. Um, it's called the nuns in O N E S where they came from, who they are, where they're going. It's 160 pages, 30, 31,000 words, 42 graphs. So graph, 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 a lot of graphs. Um, <laughs> just giving a very nice overview of the religiously unaffiliated in America. It's kind of considered like a textbook of like, some sociological theory about why we have so many nuns now and like how they're different, like how atheists are different than agnostics, which are different than nothing in particular. And then I sort of talk about like how they change over time, you know, demographics. It's really like a book that'd be great for like a seminary class, like a world religions class, even like a high school level class, like talking about secularism for a week or something like that. It comes out March 7th. You can go on Amazon right now in pre-order. I got it. I pulled it up. I'm putting the yeah, link in the show please, notes. Please March, uh, March the 7th. It's first book I've ever written. They actually reached out to me. I had no desire to write a book. And they said, you could write 30,000 words. I said, okay, because I didn't want to write 50,000. So I said, 30,000 I can do. <laughs> um, like I said, a lot of graphs. It's a lot of what I do like in my Twitter. If you like what I do on Twitter, it's just like an extended art, you know, like that uh, in a book form. Um, so it's coming out in March. Check out my Twitter account, at Ryan Burge, R-Y-A-N-B-U-R-G-E. Tweet graphs every day almost. Um, and then you can go to my website, ryanburge.net. All my papers and stuff are on there. And then I write for a website called Religion in Public, religionofpublic.blog. Myself and my co-editor, Paul Jute from Denison University, we write uh, a couple pieces a month, data-driven pieces about religion and politics and American life. And that's where a lot of this stuff sort of comes from. A lot of these ideas sort of germinate on Twitter and then make it to religion and public and then sort of jump to David French and, you know, the, the Washington Post and places like this. So if you really want to see what we're up to, that's a good place to go, religionandpublic.blog. All of that stuff is in the show notes. Ryan, thank you so much, man. Appreciate it. This episode was edited by Josh Gilbert. He's available for more podcast editing work, and his email is in the show notes. Patreon.com slash Dan Coke to become a patron. That link's in the notes. And of course, check out all that wonderful stuff from Ryan and from David French in the show notes. We'll see you guys next week.